Hello, and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today is the day, if you're at all interested in console video gaming, today is the day when we finally have some specification, some breakdown of what the purported PlayStation 5 will be able to do. And we also can have the ability to juxtapose that information that we received today with the information that Microsoft has been putting out there for some time. Now, before we get started, a brief disclaimer. I have joked in virtual legality in the past about the fact that no matter what kind of controversial topic I cover in this series, the one that gets the most kind of virulent, angry comments to these videos are ones that even remotely touch on the console war. So when I made this thumbnail, when I titled this video, I knew putting the PlayStation 5 logo behind some jail bars would probably raise some ire. And I want to get out there right out in front that I'm not a console warrior. I am going to have both of these consoles. I'm very interested in both of the things that these companies are trying to do, trying to achieve, and very interested in the messaging that they choose to go forth and trying to sell these things, especially in the state of the world as it is today with so much up in the air. That being said, if you go back and you look at the videos that are on this channel, you will see that I have preferred the Microsoft messaging so far with respect to their Xbox Series X. That didn't change today. That doesn't mean that the Sony PlayStation 5 isn't going to be awesome, isn't going to make a lot of people happy. It does mean that I have certain concerns with what Sony has so far told us about this system, and that has been essentially exacerbated by what I have seen today, hence the title of this video, hence the image on the thumbnail. And I think in order to understand that, we kind of have to dive a little bit deeper. Thankfully, the folks at Digital Foundry and at Eurogamer have done that for us. And if you're interested in kind of the baseline video, Mark Cerny, who's the head kind of architect planner for the PlayStation 5 project, put out an hour long video describing all of this technical detail about the PlayStation 5. And you say, wow, an hour long technical detail, that's a long time. And the truth is, as it came out, this was supposed to be a talk that Mr. Cerny gave to the Game Developers Conference, GDC, which was unfortunately canceled due to, you know, various virulent diseases that YouTube prefers I not name. But as we've moved forward now, we can see that Mark Cerny does have a plan of sorts. The PlayStation 5 has some concepting, and it reminds me a lot of what the PlayStation 3 generation was doing what it was talking about in terms of trying to go off on its own beaten trail in a way that might make sense. And certainly Mark Cerny and the people that are working on his engineering team and at Sony are brilliant, brilliant minds are going to put together a package that is going to blow a lot of people away in what it can do, especially on a custom build level. But what I worry about is just someone that's followed the industry has game developer clients, looks at how these people interact with the things that these giant platform producers put out there, is that when you get into those custom exotics, when you get into that kind of new and different architecture, how much of that is actually going to be utilizable by the developers? Certainly in early days, uh, and, and then going forward, third parties that have to put a game out on both the Microsoft system and the Sony system, how do they interact with what's happening? How do they relate? And the two philosophies here are very interesting. Before we kind of get into the specifics, it seems clear based on what we can see from Microsoft and Sony that Microsoft 
is throwing all the horses at their system. They want to do a big GPU. They want to do a big CPU. They want to have huge amounts of memory bandwidth. They want to just have a big honking horse of a system, the big giant truck, if you're thinking about this as vehicles. And they say, hey, if we got a strong enough engine, if we've got a big enough gas tank, we're just going to run through every problem that any kind of game developer could throw at us. And that makes a lot of sense. It does mean that what they're putting together is probably going to be more expensive than what we're about to look at with respect to the Sony PlayStation 5. No guarantees there, because again, if we're thinking about this from a business and economics point of view, you can always decide what the price point is on the hardware that you put out there. The actual cost of building the thing doesn't dictate what your price is, but it does dictate exactly what your bottom line looks at for selling a piece of that hardware, right? So we looked at an article earlier this year, seemingly years ago, now that everything has happened in the world as it is today, but earlier this year where Sony said, hey, we are not so sure about what our price point's gonna be. We're still working on getting the entire supply infrastructure in terms of building these things. Some leaks came out that suggested that they were having difficulty hitting a $450 hardware in price point, that it was costing them that much to build the unit. And what would they then go out to the market with as the cost of the PlayStation 5? All of these are very interesting, but the cost of the unit to make doesn't dictate what they sell it at. They might have to do it as a loss leader. They might have to take a a beating if they want to get those consoles out under TVs. It all depends on what Microsoft does, what their actual cost of building the thing is. And while Xbox and Microsoft seem more keen on selling a bigger, stronger, probably more expensive console, and as we've discussed in virtual legality, the reason for that is likely in part that they've got a little something in their back pocket that they're planning on selling a smaller, svelter, more agile version of the Xbox Series X, probably Series Y or Series whatever, that will be cheaper and compete directly with kind of the mass market appeal audience that Sony seems to be aimed directly at. But right now, what we've got is this kind of bifurcation of the market with Xbox just doing a kind of normal, really, really strong PC approach and Sony doing something else. So let's take a look at this article. Sony has broken its silence. PlayStation 5 specifications are now out in the open with system architect Mark Cerny delivering a deep dive presentation into the nature of the new hardware and the ways in which we should expect a true generational leap over PlayStation 4. Digital Foundry had the chance to watch the lecture a couple of days ahead and had the opportunity to talk to Cerny in more depth afterwards about the nature of the custom PlayStation hardware and the philosophy behind its design. Today, we'll be looking at what we've learned from Sony's video broadcast, and a little further on down the road, we'll go deeper and share even more detail about the central pillars. In summary, however, these are the core details covered today. Bullet point number one, the technical specifications of PlayStation 5, which we're going to look at, and its innovative boost approach to core clocks, which is where I really want to focus this discussion in this video. I'm not, by any means, a technical savant. I can follow these articles as well as probably anybody else can that follows the video game industry in general, but I can't tell you half of what Mark Cerny says in his development platforms, in his videos, anywhere else. And I think that's great. I think the world needs really smart people focused on very specialized areas to make the best possible things that they can. Doesn't need everybody to understand exactly how it works, but I'm telling you that as background for what I'm about to talk about in this video is just generalized concerns about exotic approaches to power. And and that's what the Sony PlayStation 5 appears to exemplify. The second bullet point 
the features of the PlayStation 5 GPU. The third bullet point, how the SSD helps deliver the next generation dream. That's their solid state hard drive. The fourth bullet point, how Sony tackles expandable storage. And the fifth, unprecedented 3D audio fidelity via the Tempest 3D audio engine. Now, we're probably going to elide most of the final bullet points there because I think there's a lot of uh, ambitious, aspirational talk that seems good, sounds good. I'll be interested to see how it plays out in the wild. And certainly part of this entire conversation is a lot of video game console manufacturers and that's Xbox now, past Xbox, past Xbox before that. Same for Sony, Nintendo, whoever else you might think of. A lot of people that are putting together a piece of hardware say a lot of good things about how it will react in the wild, how it will do things great. And to some extent they do, and to some extent they don't. I think it was a surprise to everybody back in 2013 when the Xbox One, the original recipe Xbox One, came out and couldn't hit 1080p, was having to play Call of Duty at 720 and things along those lines because we didn't assume based on what the stats were showing that that would be what what would happen. And so when we look at all of these things, the thing that I would give people to kind of chew on and to think about is we can take all these numbers, we can look at all these charts, all these tables, and we can be aspirational. We can hope for the best from all these things. We're not going to know how the Xbox Series X and the PlayStation 5 work as counterparts to each other until we've got Ubisoft presenting an Assassin's Creed game on both the Xbox and the PlayStation. And we can see for ourselves how difficult it is to utilize the infrastructure of the PlayStation or the Xbox and exactly what kind of power you're going to get out of the box. Because at some level, the specifications only matter so much What matters even more is how much kind of efficiency the developers can get out of the architecture that is placed before them. Remembering, of course, that for a company like a Ubisoft or an Electronic Arts or an Activision, they have to make all these versions of the game at once. And to some extent, they're going to build it for the lowest common denominator for what they can build the most easily and then port over to whatever the other non-lead development platforms are. So in that kind of view, I do think that Sony runs a risk of potentially causing problems for developers, but let's let's talk about why. What's exciting about this presentation is that Sony presents a vision for next gen that recaptures some of the pioneering spirit of its early consoles by delivering state-of-the-art, exotic, custom silicon with a razor-sharp focus on taking the gaming experience to the next level. So I've highlighted that in blue, but with the word exotic highlighted in yellow, because it's that exoticness that gives me personally pause. I think you can do really, really cool things with exotic architecture, just like you can do really, really cool things with exotic cars. But if you don't know how to drive that exotic car, it's not going to drive very well for you. There's a scene at the top of Ford versus Ferrari, which is a good movie. I, I recommend it uh, for people to check out, where uh, one of the characters in that movie is a, running a garage and one of his customers comes in with an exotic car and he says, you don't know how to drive it. And the scene ends with this person having a really, really strong car, essentially failing to shift it and kind of idling out of the garage. And in a comedic scene, we're supposed to laugh at the fact that this person doesn't know how to utilize that car properly. I think in the same way, there is a risk whenever you're talking about something exotic that asking third parties to use that exoticness to the maximum extent of its capabilities is always going to present a problem which is why you get the next sentence here from Digital Foundry and Eurogamer. 
But at the same time, the design embraces the developer-friendly ethos that proved so successful with PlayStation 4. The idea is that developers comfortable with the current generation hardware can easily get to grips with the basics of the PlayStation 5 and easily access the extra CPU, GPU, and storage features before exploring the new features at their own pace. That the architecture of this system should be viewed as a stronger PlayStation 4, or more specifically, a stronger PlayStation 4 Pro, and all the extra stuff, the solid state drive, some of the stuff they're doing with the 3D audio, that the developers can figure that out moving on. Now, I think that's a good kind of motto, a good kind of mission statement to have. The question that I would have just reading this article, and again, as a non-really technical engineering-focused individual, is does that actually happen with what is being described in the PlayStation 5? So proceeding on with the article, we now get to the specs, right? And they kind of talk about a lot of these specs. The one I want to focus on here is with respect to the CPU and the GPU. I've highlighted this language. It says Sony's customized version of the AMD RDNA2 GPU features 36 compute units. You'll see that kind of abbreviated in various places. That's CUs. Running at frequencies that are capped at 2.23 gigahertz, effectively delivering 10.28 teraflops of peak compute performance. Technical language, right? All sorts of fun. However, again, while 2.23 gigahertz is the limit and also the typical speed, it can drop lower based on the workloads being demanded of it. PC5 uses a boost clock then, and we'll explain that presently later in the article, but equally importantly, it's important to remember that performance from an RDNA compute unit far outstrips a PS4 or PS4 Pro equivalent based on an older architecture. Now, there's a bunch of things I want to unpack here, but first of all, I do find the actual use of the language as boost to be very funny because I read through all of this. I read through exactly what was described in Digital Foundry. I watched the video and boost appears to be the exact opposite in terms of how this is presented. They've got 2.23 as your flat kind of frequency for your GPU and they call this a kind of boost mode. But in essence, what they are saying is that's its top end. That's the top of the frequencies that are available to either the CPU or the GPU as described. And what Boost does, it says it can lower it in certain specific instances. Now, we're going to talk about the fact that Sony says that it's not temperature-based, it's power-based, and what that means for the console. But ultimately, what Boost means when you see it described then is that the gigahertz that they can show on a table like this are somewhat aspirational. So we're getting promises from Mark Cerny, we're getting promises from Sony that they are going to hit those frequencies almost all of the time. But... As you know, if you're in video gaming, if you're involved in the video gaming industry, you know that that promise of, oh, it hits X all of the time, except for very few instances, sounds a lot like, oh, it's at 60 frames per second. It's relatively constant. Don't worry about it. And then when the video game gets to Digital Foundry and you find that it's 47 and sometimes goes to 25, you say, yeah, that's game developer speak. And I don't mind aspiration. I think that's great. But when you are now talking about putting out these specs, these kind of top line, this is the ideal circumstance, this is what the frequency is going to be, I think we have to see it actually operate in the wild with actual games that are placed on the system to confirm for ourselves, or more specifically to have Digital Foundry and Eurogamer confirm for us, that those frequencies are being hit. It sounds good right now, but you can see why, as we'll get down later in the article, Xbox and Microsoft avoids this kind of talk 
because it presents exactly the kind of problem that I'm saying, which is all that can happen is that those numbers can be lower. And if that's the case, you're depending on third parties to make sure that they don't go lower by utilizing your system properly in a way that the Microsoft Series X just isn't. And so that's what's happening right now. I also think for purposes of this article, Eurogamer and Digital Foundry are stealing a base just a little bit because they're comparing the PlayStation 5 to the PlayStation 4. And in my opinion, when you're looking at an article like this, you are speaking to an audience of people that are very invested in knowing what the power behind the next generation consoles are. I think it makes more sense to compare the PlayStation 5 to the PlayStation 4 Pro, the interstitial generational kind of refresh that I think most people that are really invested, really interested in seeing the best power for their dollar probably have under their TV if they're at all interested in the PlayStation ecosystem at all. So if we actually compare this to the PlayStation 4 Pro, you'd see on that sideline a lot of numbers that are higher. Uh, It's a little bit harder to compare directly, but we have an article from Eurogamer that talks about the PlayStation 4 Pro, and you can see that the PlayStation 4 Pro has a 30% increase in the CPU power, has a 130% increase in the GPU, has more memory bandwidth. So the actual comparison point between the PlayStation 5 and what you can right now have under your TV for a very reasonable sum is not this. So you can't really take this table as sacrosanct if you were at all invested in the power race in console gaming. So that's as it stands right now. It's also worth noting as we get into the discussion of Boost that Xbox is doing the exact opposite. If we actually look at what Xbox and Microsoft put out there a couple days ago, they have been described by Eurogamer and Digital Foundry as follows. As expected, we're getting eight CPU cores and 16 threads delivered via two quad-core units on the silicon with one CPU core, or two threads, reserved for running the underlying operating system in the front-end shell. Microsoft is promising a 4x improvement in both single-core and overall throughput over Xbox One X, and CPU speeds are impressive with a peak 3.8 gigahertz frequency. Note that that is a higher number than the PlayStation 5. This is when SMT, or hyper-threading, is disabled. Curiously, developers can choose to run with eight physical cores at the higher clock, or all cores and threads can be enabled with a lower 3.6 gigahertz frequency. Note the orange. Those frequencies are completely locked and won't adjust according to load or thermal conditions, a point Microsoft emphasized several times during our visit. Now, for those of you that ever think that the Microsofts and Sonys of the world don't know what each other are doing, and this doesn't require high-level corporate espionage, it just requires people to talk at the bar or what have you, this sentence should put those thoughts aside. The reason a Microsoft representative would emphasize that their core speeds, their frequencies don't change multiple times during their visit is clearly because they knew that the Sony infrastructure was going to have at its core variable frequencies to get higher numbers up on their spec sheet to have an article from Eurogamer and Digital Foundry that talks about that highest, best possible use case teraflop number. And so Microsoft said, hey, you don't have to worry about our stuff being slowed down. That's never going to happen regardless of load or thermal conditions. You might have to talk to our competitors about that in a couple days. That's what Xbox is looking at. That's why I described it earlier as essentially putting all the horses in as much as possible. You see the 12 teraflop number. You see these higher gigahertz on the CPU. You see a lot of uh, very high-speed memory bandwidth. It's a different architecture from the PlayStation 5. 
and it presents an interesting kind of consideration for developers. That's when we get into boost mode. It's really important to clarify the PlayStation 5's use of variable frequencies. It's called boost, but it should not be compared with similarly named technologies found in smartphones or even PC components like CPUs and GPUs. There, peak performance is tied directly to thermal headroom, so in higher temperature environments, gaming frame rates can be lower, sometimes a lot lower. This is entirely at odds with expectations from a console, where we expect all machines to deliver the exact same performance. To be abundantly clear from the outset, PlayStation 5 is not boosting clocks in this way. According to Sony, all PS5 consoles process the same workloads with the same performance level in any environment, no matter what the ambient temperature may be. So that's a long way of saying this is not a boost based on temperature. They are not trying to have the PlayStation 5 read exactly how hot it's getting in your specific environment and change its frequencies based on that. Instead, it's based on power in a way that I don't think Mark Cerny or this article makes entirely clear, and I'm very intrigued to see kind of operate with an actual application in the console. But here's what they describe it as. They say, so how does Boost work in this case? Put simply, the PlayStation 5 is given a set power budget tied to the thermal limits of the cooling assembly. It's a completely different paradigm, says Cerny. Rather than running at a constant frequency and letting the power vary based on the workload, we run at essentially constant power and let the frequency vary based on the workload. An internal monitor analyzes workloads on both CPU and GPU and adjusts frequencies to match. While it's true that every piece of silicon has slightly different temperature and power characteristics, the monitor bases its determinations on the behavior of what Cerny calls a model system on a chip, a standard reference point for every PlayStation 5 that would be, be, be produced. So the PlayStation 5 has within it a piece of software that has what it is supposed to be doing, regardless of what its actual chipset is doing, and can say, have an application, tell it what power it should be running at, and change the frequencies of the CPU and GPU to match the overall power workload. That's very interesting, right? 100%, it absolutely is. It's a different way of thinking about how all of this should work. And as Eurogamer and Digital Foundry notes, because we just looked at it in the article they did two days ago, it's a fascinating idea and entirely at odds with Microsoft's design decisions for Xbox Series X. And what this likely means is that developers will need to be mindful of potential power consumption spikes that could impact clocks and lower performance of their games, specifically on the PlayStation 5, which presents the problems that I wanted to detail here, right? I don't mind this at all. I think it's great when you have competing companies provide alternative measures for putting something out there in the wild, uh, putting a piece of hardware out there. The issue is that you've got third parties that want to have their applications operate on both sets of hardware. And so if the Xbox comes out there and says, hey, this is a PC, it's a really strong PC, just put your game to on it and you don't really need to worry about it. This really strong PC is going to take care of it. And then if you were to take that and you put that directly on the PlayStation 5, you might have issues because you're not as worried about these power consumption spikes and issues that are going to arise from what they are doing with their kind of boost clocked uh, situation with their CPU and their GPUs. So if I'm a developer, maybe I have to devote additional technical resources to the PlayStation 5. Maybe that's fine if PlayStation 5 is selling like gangbusters and it makes a lot of sense for me to devote those resources there. But if you get into an Xbox 360 versus PlayStation 3 type scenario, you might have instances where 
that third party doesn't want to devote those resources, where it doesn't make sense to devote those resources. And having this separation of architecture and this additional consideration, I do think presents potential problems for, for developers. The article continues, Sony's pitch is essentially this, a smaller GPU can be more nimble, more agile, and the inference being that PS5's graphics core should be able to deliver performance higher than you might expect from the teraflops number that doesn't accurately encompass the capabilities of all parts of the GPU. Developers work to the power limits of the system on the chip, their workloads affecting frequencies on the fly, but it's those factors that impact the clock speeds and not ambient temperatures. In some ways, it becomes a simpler problem because there are no more unknowns, Cerny says in his presentation. There's no need to guess what power consumption the worst case game might have. That being said, there are going to be worst case games. On the face of it, PlayStation 5 delivers a ton of power, but there does seem to be an extra onus on developers to optimize to these new characteristics. The question is, what happens when the processor does hit its power limit and components downclock? In his presentation, Mark Cerny freely admits that CPU and GPU won't always be running at 3.5 gigahertz and 2.23 gigahertz, respectively. When that worst case game arrives, it will run at a lower clock speed, but not too much lower. To reduce power by 10%, it only takes a couple of percent reduction in frequency, so I'd expect any downclocking to be minor. All things considered, the change to a variable frequency approach will show significant gains for PlayStation gamers. Again, I think you can talk a good game. And I don't even think Mark Cerny is at all kind of dissembling on any of this. I don't think he's lying to us. I think he truly believes that the developers are going to be able to put out games. They're not going to have to lower clock speeds that much. It's not going to be that big of a deal. But all of this is aspirational. And without an application to actually view on the system, it winds up a bit more pie in the sky sounding than what Microsoft is putting out there. And I think the entire intent here is to get a Sony PlayStation 5 under your TV at a lower price point, right? And they've got these other concepts in here, but in terms of the raw power of the system, it is going to be less powerful, just in terms of raw numbers, than the Xbox. They know that. It looks like they're going to try to sell that at a more cheaper price point. And that makes sense based on what we've known about Microsoft and their move towards gaming as a service, a continuing revenue stream. They don't care that much about any specific console winding up under your TV. They want to sell you Game Pass. They want to get you in the Xbox ecosystem versus Sony having a very traditional console model that depends a lot on actually making sure that you buy a PlayStation 5. In that paradigm, it makes a lot of sense to make sure that you come out at a lower price point than your competitor. When Microsoft says, hey, you buy an Xbox Series X, that's fine. If you stick with your Xbox One X, that's fine too. And hey, maybe we're going to have this Lockhart thing to sell you. That'll be okay with us. As long as you buy Game Pass, as long as you're a recurring revenue source, that's what we are looking for out of our model. Sony says, no, if you don't buy PlayStation 5s in goodly amounts, we are going to have significant problems with our business model. You would expect them to come out at a lower price point. And as it happens... That means at least on the top line, it looks like a significantly less powerful system just in terms of numbers than the Series X. And because of that, you wind up with all of this kind of argumentation. You wind up with all of this extra language that says, okay, yes, those numbers are lower, but we're going to be able to do more with those lower numbers because of all this kind of magic and secret sauce that we have inside the system. The next piece of magic sauce is the solid state drive. 
They say they have this huge kind of memory ability to move things in and out of the solid state drive. It does mean your actual storage on the system is going to be lower than you might have hoped for uh, with the 825 gigabytes. Eurogamer and Digital Foundry actually qualify this as Mark Cerny having very different priorities than raw power. He says there's the small matter of the next-gen dream to consider. And I think that's all well and good. I think that's all great. I very much hope that the PlayStation 5 presents something that is next generation in a way that's very difficult to tell reading an article on a video game enthusiast website here in the month of March. But right now, we're taking a lot on faith. And I don't think this presentation was what would get you there if you were hoping for something a little bit more from the PlayStation. 3D audio fidelity sounds pretty cool. The ability to expand storage sounds cool. Solid state drive is clearly where they are banking a lot on what they want to sell to you, which is this orders of magnitude, faster load times in their system. They describe how it works. Again, I highly recommend checking out this article, checking out the presentation. I will, of course, link these in the description to this video because all this stuff is great and these people know a lot more than me about the specifics about how all this works. But when we get right down to it, I think it's important to note that they are presenting something that is uh, maybe a little bit slower, a little bit less powerful than we would have hoped for coming out of a presentation like this. And that might be, when we talk about corporate messaging, why they held this so close to their vest for so long. When we look at the orange line that I read to you earlier from Eurogamer and Digital Foundry, PS5 uses the boost clock, but equally important, it's, it's important to remember that performance from an RDNA compute unit far outstrips a PS4 or PS4 Pro equivalent, that that's not really what we're talking about here. Yes, the PlayStation 5 is going to be stronger than the PlayStation 4 Pro, and certainly stronger than the PlayStation 4. That's not really what we're discussing at the end of the day when we talk about these kinds of hardware comparisons. We're really discussing how it will compare to the Xbox. How will it compare to what could be the stronger system that you can put under your television? And will PlayStation 5 be able to play the games that an Xbox Series X could when we talk specifically about third parties? A lot of you might come into the comments to this video or otherwise tweet me on Twitter, at Hoglaw, I'll follow you, uh, and say, hey, Rick, none of this matters because God of War 2 is going to be on the PlayStation 5 because PlayStation 5 is where I'm going to be able to get my Spider-Man fix. All of that is true. Right? There's a reason I'm going to have both systems is because I like first-party software from both, but also because I strongly suspect that the third-party games are going to play better on the Xbox Series X. Right, That's part of the equation as well. So go where your favorite games are, 100%, but also you know, try to look at these things objectively and say, yeah, from what has been presented, it looks like the PlayStation 5 is a little slower. And what they have tried to say to argue that they are going to be able to compete at a teraflop level to have the graphics that you're going to expect from your other system under your TV, or at least that we expect just from how they've described it so far, is all of this secret sauce, right? And it reminded me so much of what they were saying in the PlayStation 3 era, where you couldn't look at any specific article about the PlayStation 3 and not have in it mentioned the mighty cell processor that was exponentially stronger than anything anybody had seen before that was just going to knock down the walls of video gaming and the PlayStation 3 was so much stronger than the Xbox on the other side of the spectrum and wow what could developers get out of this thing and the answer was well they could get a lot out of it 
if they were first party supported and they had the entirety of the length of the generation to go figure out how the thing worked. But for everybody else, everybody that was trying to build to a more generic architecture, the cell proved a big stumbling block. I pulled up an article from Gaming Bolt here called The Untapped Potential of the PS3's Cell Processor and How Naughty Dog Tamed the Beast. And in order to kind of understand what was happening here, it's important to kind of see exactly how it mirrors with what we're hearing about the PlayStation 5, right? Development on Cell began in 2000 when the PlayStation 3 wasn't much more than a whiteboard drawing. Sony teamed up with Toshiba and IBM in a joint venture called STI for a wide range of commercial applications ranging from scientific work to graphics and physics processing. What's important to note is that while powerful, Cell wasn't purpose-built for gaming, and this had implications for PS3 game development down the road. Circa 2005, when the PS3 was announced, the Cell was a radical departure from anything on the market. The very first dual-core processors in the world, the Athlon X2 and the Pentium D, were released in May 2005, the same month that the PS3 was announced at E3. In contrast, the PS3 Cell featured what's essentially a 1 plus 8 core design optimized for running parallelized code. The PPE, or PowerPC processor element, is at the heart of Cell. The PPE is essentially a rather simplified general-purpose processor based on the PowerPC architecture. PowerPC-based hardware was fairly common at the time, with Macs having shipped with PowerPC processors until 2005. So, so far, we're basically looking at a single PowerPC core running at a 3.2 gigahertz. So far, nothing special. The Xbox 360 Xenon processor consists of three of these. The SPE's synergistic processing elements are what made Cell unique, and of course, what made it uniquely challenging for game developers to work with. The SPEs were a set of eight further streamlined processor cores with limitations such as not feature cache and not having branch prediction. Engaging the PPE was straightforward. The trouble came with getting the SPEs to perform to their fullest extent. The cells-wide architecture played a big role in the deficit that was often seen between the PS3 and Xbox 360 in 7th gen multi-platform games. Skyrim's among the worst offenders, but many titles, from Assassin's Creed to the Far Cry games, often ran and performed worse on the PlayStation 3. For much of the 7th gen, dual-core processors were common in the PC space, and the Xbox 360's Xenos were tri-core. As a result, there was an emphasis on writing code optimized for high single-threaded performance. This was great if you were rocking a Core 2 Duo or on an Xbox 360, but the same code wouldn't run so hot on the Cell, where you have one relatively high-performance PPE and eight specialized SPEs. Oftentimes, developers simply opted to make minimal use of the SPEs, offloading most of the processing load to the single PPE. All right, so that was a big, long section of technical talk. But what you get from it is that, that the cell was a bit of secret sauce. It was a bit of a magical processor. It did something different. It did something exotic. It had this one super strong processor, and it had these eight processors that went with it to help it out. But what you found was developers who didn't want to invest the resources into going and figuring out how to optimize that to its maximal extent said, okay, so you've got one really strong processor. Okay, we'll go with that. We'll figure that out. Which gave the Xbox 360, which ostensibly just on a numbers basis was probably not as strong as a cell working at full optimization. It gave the 360 the stronger, more adept multi-platform video games. In this situation now in 2020, you've got a little bit worse if you're Sony and PlayStation. If we have anything remotely resembling cell issues, and I'm not saying that we will. 
I'm going to talk about that a little bit at the end. But if you have anything remotely resembling the issues that are presented in an article like this and that we saw in that generation, then the problem that you have is not only is the Xbox more streamlined and more looking like a PC for developers, it's also stronger. It's just straight up stronger. You're not looking at a situation where the PlayStation 5 is exotic, unique, and stronger. You're looking at a situation where the PlayStation 5 may well be exotic, unique, and weaker. And I think that's worth kind of noting here is that if that is in fact the case, and if the Xbox really does have a significant uptick, and Microsoft is throwing a lot of resources at buying studios and selling Game Pass and getting people involved and invested in Microsoft, in my opinion, they're doing a very, very good job of messaging ever since maybe two or three years ago, that if Xbox takes off and you've got developers trying to make these choices and then they have something like a power spike that would trigger a lower frequency refresh on the PlayStation 5 units, how much do they go and change their code? How much time and effort and money and manpower do they spend to optimize a game for whatever it is that the Sony PlayStation 5 is doing? That is part of this entire conversation. In Naughty Dog's own words, Naughty Dog being a first-party developer for Sony, Uncharted 1 used maybe 30% efficiency. Uncharted 1 came out very early in the PlayStation 3 generation. Uncharted 2, we were finally using 100%, but it wasn't efficient as it could be. Then Uncharted 3, we got way more efficient, and with The Last of Us, we are as efficient as we can possibly be. We're squeezing every last drop of power out of the system. Naughty Dog had the opportunity to be a, a game company, a developer that was funded by PlayStation, that was funded by Sony, and was being used to essentially sell the system and what it can do. So they got the opportunity to spend all that time, the entire time of the generation, to go figure out how to maximize the abilities of this processor. All of which was information and knowledge that was lost and useless once PlayStation 3 became PlayStation 4 and mirrored a... PC concept at both that level as well as at the Microsoft level. So you had essentially one kind of unified architecture for this entire last generation. Now, Mark Cerny is not the man that was behind the PlayStation 3. As I understand it, he was brought in to talk about PlayStation 4 back in the day because of some of the issues that Sony faced with Cell and to have those conversations with developers. So I don't believe that Mark Cerny is someone that would make exactly the same mistakes as Sony did with the cell processor. But Mark Cerny is also not a wizard. And in my opinion, was clearly given directive from the board or from whoever at Sony to say, we want to hit a price point here. We want to make sure we continue this ride we've been on with the PlayStation 4 generation. We want to outsell Microsoft and their Xbox Series X or Series Y or Series W or whatever it winds up being. And in order to do that, we're going to need some secret sauce. And so Mark Cerny and his, in my opinion, brilliant team of engineers in both of these companies, Microsoft and Sony, have brilliant engineering teams putting together these magic boxes that can go under your TV and put all these images on your screen for $500. But he went to his team and said, all right, we're going to have to figure this out. We're going to have to put this secret sauce together. And I think Eurogamer, because they're a positive uh, they're a positive website. They want to continue to have these relationships with Sony and with Microsoft to have these kinds of early access to be able to put these articles out. I think Eurogamer is kind of uh, avoiding the question a little bit. They do say things like, hey, there does seem to be an extra onus on developers to optimize these new characteristics. We're looking at all this and it seems like developers are going to have to do something, right, Mark Cerny? 
And Mark Cerny is essentially saying in his presentation and in the quotes in this article, no, that's rarely going to happen. Most games are never going to have to deal with any frequency reductions. The frequencies are going to be way up here. 10.28 teraflops. Don't you worry about it. And I think to Mark Cerny, he thinks that's the truth. He thinks that developers are going to figure it out. They're not going to have power issues and everything's going to be just fine and dandy. But I think there are going to be issues. And I think there are going to be a lot of developers out there that are going to try to figure out how to utilize the PlayStation 5 essentially as a super-powered PlayStation 4, not get into all these other questions, and wind up losing a bit of that overhead. That maybe you don't get 10.28 teraflops. Maybe you get something in the nines because that's what you get from just kind of making an Xbox game and bringing it over to the PlayStation 5. And there's nothing wrong with nine some odd teraflops, right? That's stronger than the PlayStation 4 Pro. It's going to be great but it's probably not going to be an Xbox Series X. And if you love PlayStation, and I've loved PlayStation for a long time, and you also enjoy Microsoft and their Xbox products, I think that's worth kind of noting, is that the expectation that I have based on these articles, and I would be happy to be wrong, is that you're going to get a slightly less powerful system with the PlayStation 5. You're going to get all their first-party content. You're going to get your God of Wars, your Spider-Mans, whatever else you might be interested in. But based on what we have seen so far, Absent this secret sauce, which may not even be utilizable by developers to their utmost extent, absent all of that, you're probably going to get a slightly less strong PlayStation 5. And Sony hopes that this kind of magic boosting, the variable frequencies, the use of the SSD, maybe some cool 3D audio magic are going to make up for that difference. But probably at the end of the day, what they're really going to hope for in terms of making up that difference is they're going to try to deliver this at a significantly lower price point than the Xbox Series X. Either way, we're in for quite the ride, and I'm looking forward a lot to the teardown of the Sony PlayStation 5, where they actually show this thing, uh, as well as what Microsoft has to offer at E3 and beyond. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you enjoyed this video, please like, please subscribe, tell your friends we're here. We love to have these conversations in the comments to our video. Otherwise, if you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it in its podcast form, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.